How do you keep them out of the midst so they're not blossoming up all around you and sowing tares among the wheat? What about marriage counseling? Who's going to do the marriage counseling in a situation like that? Who follows up on people when they're missing from fellowship one week? Where do you meet? How do you tell people about it? What about the sick, the poor, the widows? Who takes care of them? In fact, it was that very problem that caused a crisis in the fledgling church. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Tonight, and we want to look at that passage. You know, it is, it is obvious that the early church practiced charitable relief. In fact, the Bible says, in fact, go to, with me to uh, Acts chapter 2. Let's begin there instead. Acts 2, and look at verse 41 and following. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's explosive growth. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was an exciting time. This was a time when poverty ceased to exist in the church, at least for this short period of time. There was a spirit of generosity that came across the people of God and came upon the people of God such that they were voluntarily sharing of their possessions and treasures one with another. Look over with me to Acts chapter 4. You will see the same thing beginning in verse 34. Willie, turn this the game down just a little bit, bud. Thank you. For there was not a needy person among them, it says, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. An exciting time. I mean, remember here at this time, there were no governmental relief agencies. There was no governmentally organized welfare system. There was no safety net. There was no unemployment insurance. There was no medical insurance. There was no life insurance. There was no place to go governmentally if, if life became difficult for you. 
You were on your own, and in fact, you were dependent upon your family and your extended circle of friends to provide for your needs. That was your safety net. There was a community involved, and you were dependent upon that community to help you out. I mean, families take care of each other, don't they? When one in a family has trouble, other family members will come to their aid. Isn't that true? Well, here, a, a new family has been born, a, a big new family, and this big new family took care of their own. And they took care of their own to such a degree that it says here, back in verse 34 of Acts 4, not a needy person among them. That is an amazing statement. An amazing statement. You know, the church is just one big family, and it is ideally suited to meet the needs of its people. Turn with me now to Acts, Acts 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this evening together under the title of What Do Deacons Do? And I just want to begin and acknowledge that Luke does not say with certainty that he is setting out here to talk about deacons. I will acknowledge that up front. In fact, the word deacons does not appear in this text anywhere. So I tell you that now up front so that afterwards someone doesn't come up to me and say, do you know the word deacons is not even in this text? Yes, I am well aware of the fact that it is, it is nowhere in this text. And in fact, we can't be positive that Luke is setting out even to, to describe the origin of the office of deacon. We can't, we can't say that definitively either. In fact, it's interesting, someone else may point out to you or a bit later, or you may be thinking yourself, well, that over in Acts chapter 11, there is a relief contribution taken for the poor of the church at Jerusalem, and it is brought by Barnabas and Paul, and it is given to the elders of the church. I'm aware of all of those facts, well aware of all of those facts, but I think still that what is going on here is not an explanation of the origin of the office of a deacon, but instead is a description of the ministries of a deacon. And there's a big difference there. We would all readily acknowledge, wouldn't we, that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes the, or the characteristics necessary for a man to serve in the office of a deacon. Isn't that true? And in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, he addresses that epistle to the elders, the congregation and the elders and the deacons. So we know that there are deacons in the church. The question just becomes, what do deacons do? And I believe that it is not without reason that Luke includes this vignette for us. The book of Acts covers 30 years in the history of the early church. There was a lot Luke could have written about that occurred in 30 years, yet he chose this particular incident and described it to us in a way that I believe is instructive. Luke was aware there are deacons. He traveled with the Apostle Paul, did he not? So he was well aware of the fact there were deacons. And I, I think Luke includes this for us, because not that this is the origination of the office of a deacon, but that what is going on here in Acts chapter 6 is descriptive of the ministry of a deacon. And I will hope to demonstrate that for you tonight as we go forward. So tonight, as we're looking at this passage, we're going to make four observations. Okay? Four observations that we will make from this passage pertaining to the role of deacons. 
so that we will understand the function of a deacon at Foothill Bible Church. Okay, that's our objective. Four observations from the text pertaining to the role of a deacon so that we will understand the function of deacons here at Foothill Bible Church. All right, you ready? First observation. First observation, there was a bad situation. Verses 1 and 2, there was a bad situation going on here. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose, arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. I'm going to stop there. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. There is a bad situation going on. The church is new. It's in its infant stages. It's probably, it could be as early as only a year. It could be, it could be a little longer than that as you try to put the chronology of the book of Acts together. Certainly Paul's not been converted yet. And so depending on how the date, uh, the date you place for the conversion of the Apostle Paul helps date this section. But in any case, it's clearly within the first five years. I think it's within the first year or so of the founding of the church at Pentecost. And already there is a major problem going on here in the church. The, the general prosperity of the church is being disturbed, it says, because there is a complaint. Do you see that? There's a complaint going on. A ganguzmas. Now, if you were here this morning, that word should stick out in your mind immediately. There is another ganguzmas going on. In this case, it's not ganguzo, which is the, the verb, which means grumbling. This is, this is a noun speaking of the complaint. There is a complaint arising here. There is a murmuring within the congregation going on, a, a complaining, a grumbling. And notice that it's on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrew Jews. What is the reason? What is the reason for the complaining? And, and who were the two groups of people that were complaining one against another? Well, the text gives us the source of the complaint, doesn't it? It says that their widows, the Hellenistic Jewish widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving. Now, your text it's, of food is probably in your text. Is that right? It should be in italics in your text because that's an insertion by the translators to try to give you a, a smoother understanding of what's going on here. But it is, it is a commentator's insert. So let's just leave it alone for a minute and just say that they're being overlooked in the daily serving. And we'll come back and decide whether we agree that it's of food that they're talking about. So in any case, there is, a, there is a complaint going on because certain widows are being overlooked. Which widows? The Hellenistic widows. Again, notice Jews is in italics. Do you see that in your text? So it's talking about the Hellenists are being overlooked. That's what the text says. The Hellenists are being overlooked. Who are the Hellenists or who are the Hellenistic Jews? Immigrants. That's, uh, that's exactly right. They are immigrants. They are Jews from the diaspora. The diaspora, the dispersion. You'll remember that when Nebuchadnezzar came in and leveled the city, in fact, the, uh, the source of the reading in Lamentations, when he leveled the city of Jerusalem, he took away captive many of the people and he dispersed the rest. 
those that he didn't kill anyways, he dispersed them throughout the world. And that began what is called the diaspora or the dispersion of the Jewish peoples. They have been dispersed throughout the world from that time right up till today. They are still salted among the nations. And now as they were driven out, they were driven into many Greek-speaking areas. And as happens to anyone, when you move into a new cultural area, you begin to adopt some of the cultural patterns of the people around you. Isn't that true? And so that's exactly what these diaspora did. They began to adopt the Greek language. And so they spoke first. Their native tongue was Greek. They also, to one degree or another, adopted Greek customs, Greek dress, taste for Greek food, maybe Greek music, I don't know. But they began to adopt the customs of the people in which they lived. So these are the, these are the diaspora. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a diaspora Jew. He was born where? Tarsus in Cilicia. That is part of Turkey. That is a Greek area. So the Apostle Paul, although he was brought up in Jerusalem and was, and was very comfortable in Palestinian Judaism, was also comfortable in Greek Judaism. Which, by the way, makes him a very unique man, doesn't it? The ability to church plant cross-culturally. He was at home in both cultures. So this is the diaspora. This is the Hellenistic Jews. Another thing that we need to know about them is that it was not uncommon towards the end of their life for a man to take his wife and to move back to Palestine, back to Jerusalem or the Jerusalem area, so that he might live out the final years of his life close to the temple. You see, a good, every good Jew was supposed to appear in the temple how many times a year? Do you remember? Three times a year. And so some of them, of course, were prohibited of doing this by virtue of their distance. But towards the end of his life, not at all uncommon to move back with his wife. And there he would be near the fatherland, if you want to say it that way, or the motherland. He would be near the temple. There's only a problem with that, though. When his life is lived out, he dies. What happens to his widow? She's left there in Palestine. She is a Greek-speaking woman, accustomed to Greek culture, not Palestinian Jewish culture. And so she doesn't fit in real well. And so there is a number of these widows, many of them left without adequate means of support. There's another thing we need to note historically. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, you remember that there were Jews from all over the Mediterranean world. Do you remember that? And they heard the apostles preaching, and they heard them all in their own different tongues, right? Their own languages. Well, many of them apparently came to faith right there at Pentecost. And a good number of them undoubtedly went back to their communities there are parts of the world that they were from, and they spread this new Christianity. In fact, Paul, you know, when Paul gets to Rome, Christianity is already there. But some of them, no doubt, stayed on right there in Jerusalem. They had come, they had gotten saved at Pentecost, and they were incorporated right into the new body of believers. And so they remained there. No business, no home, no good livelihood. There was just a great dependence, and that's why the welfare system of the early church was so important. That's why people were selling their property and giving it 
to the apostles so that they could spread it out among these people who were desperately in financial need. So this is the group here in verse 1, the Hellenists. But there's another group here, right? The Hebrews. The Hebrews. Your text says native Hebrews, I think. And they're they're just trying to communicate to us that these were the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Now think with me for a minute. If you've got one group of people that speaks Greek, and you've got one group of people that speaks Aramaic, let me just put it in more modern vernacular. You have one that speaks Greek, and you have one that speaks Hebrew. Because Aramaic is really the language that Christ spoke. That's what they mean when they say speak Hebrew. How much communication do you think occurs across that language barrier? Not a lot. It's very difficult. And so when people cannot communicate with each other, what tends to happen to them? They separate, don't they? They begin to separate into into ethnic communities. They pull together with those that are like them. Those with whom they can communicate. Those with whom they share common cultural heritage. And there's not a lot of cross-pollination going on. For example, say we were to have a a Chinese-speaking fellowship share the facilities with us here. In fact, it occurred many, many years ago. How much cross-fellowship could go on in such an environment as that? I mean, there are a few of you out here that probably can speak a little bit of Chinese. But you're few and far between. For the majority of us, if they couldn't speak English and we can't speak Chinese, there wouldn't be a lot of close fellowship. It's just difficult. It's difficult. And so that's what's gone on here. Furthermore, these native Hebrew Jews had a bit of a arrogance to them with regard to the Hellenistic Jews. They felt like the Hellenists had compromised with the prevailing culture. They hadn't remained true to the religion of their fathers. And so there was a kind of a tension also between the two groups. I mean, if you're really following Yahweh, then you would speak Aramaic and you would live in Palestine. If you speak Greek, you're kind of one-off, right? You're you're not quite as as Jewish as the rest of us. And so there was a, a tension here between the people. In fact, the tension was so great. Look down at verse... Nine. It's talking about Stephen here. And it says, But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freemen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. There was separate synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. There wasn't just one synagogue. There was synagogues for the different ethnic groups, the different language groups within the city. And they didn't all meet together. And that was to be changed with the church at Pentecost, right? Because the church is one people drawn from all ethnic groups, all around the world, one people of God brought together. Galatians 3.28, right? In Christ there is no male nor female, right? Bond nor free. There, um, I can't remember the rest of it. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. I hate it when that happens. There is one people of God overcoming all of those racial barriers. But here in this fledgling church, these two groups have been thrust together. They've been thrust together. And there is a tension, even the tension of Judaism didn't just go away. When you're saved, does all, do all your sinful habits and tendencies disappear? Anybody want to tell me about that? I don't think so. 
We still have to work through those things, don't we? Don't our prejudices still remain and need to be worked out, understood as sin and confessed and repented of and moved beyond? That still was the same for them. Don't, don't ever read the book of Acts and think that you're looking at super saints. You're looking at people, men and women, just like us, with all the same struggles, all the same frailties that we have. And so here in the church, there is a, there is a clash as well. The clash of Judaism moves right on over into the church. And so, as is typical, there is a polarization going on within the fellowship. There is a, a distancing that's going on, and, it, and it's having negative consequences on the ministry of the church. It says that the widows of these Hellenists are being overlooked in the daily serving. Now, the text nowhere hints that the Hellenistic widows are being intentionally left out. It doesn't say that. In fact, it uses the word overlooked, which gives the idea of inadvertence. Inadvertence. So there's not a malicious sin issue going on here. There is an inadvertent overlooking of a certain people group within the fellowship. As we said before, by the way, how do you communicate with a congregation that is growing every single day? You don't have a telephone to call them all up. You don't really have a very reliable postal system to give them second-day delivery. There are no emails. There are no fax machines. There are no clocks. There are no public address systems. How in the world do you communicate with people? And how do you keep track of whose widows are whose? Big problem, isn't there? They're being overlooked in the daily serving. The daily serving. The word is diakonia. Diakonia, and it means... It could be translated ministry, or it could be translated service, or in this case, serving. They're being overlooked in the daily diakonia. Turn with me to, uh, to Acts chapter 11. I want to trace this word, diakonia, for you for a minute, because I think it's important. Look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 29. It says, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a, relief, a contribution for the diakonia of the brethren living in Judea. It's translated here relief, but it's the same word, diakonia. Turn over to Acts chapter 12 and look at verse 25. Speaking of the same situation, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission fulfilled their mission, the same word, diakonia, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. I think that's a very instructive translation of this word, diakonia, a word that, that typically means ministry or service. That's the way it's most often translated in Acts. But here in these two, in these two verses, Acts 11.29 and Acts 12.25, the word describes financial help. It speaks of a financial contribution given to people who are in need. Given to people who are in need. You know, there was a prevailing Jewish custom of helping poor in their time of need. Helping the poor, right? I mean, the Old Testament is all about... One of the themes of the Old Testament is about helping the poor, isn't it? The poor, the widows and the orphans are those close to God's heart. Isn't that true? 
While the, the Jewish custom that prevailed at the time of the birth of the church, they had a mechanism to help with the poor. It was really a twofold mechanism. There was a daily distribution of foodstuffs. I can say it that way, food, basically bread and, and, uh, and something to drink. There was a daily distribution of this that was given to any non-resident or transient poor person that came through their community. Those that were transients, those that were non-residents, those that were passing through the sort of casual poor, if I could say it that way, there was a, there was a contribution daily of food to, to meet their needs. God says that in the Old Testament, right? You're to take care of the alien and the stranger amongst you. There was also a weekly handout of money. Every Friday, the community would, would dole out money, enough money to buy 14 meals to each and every poor member of the community. So if you were in a, whether it be a small village or a big village, this was custom. If you were poor, if you were in desperate need, every Friday at the synagogue, you would get enough money to buy 14 meals, which is what? Enough to keep you alive for another week. In modern terms, they had both a soup kitchen and a benevolence fund, if I could say it that way. And that was very much part of the Jewish culture and I believe was, was adopted right into the church. After all, it works, doesn't it? And the early church was made up of converted Jews. So they just bring it right into the church with them. So back to verse 1. The widows are being overlooked in the daily serving. It could be the daily serving of foodstuffs, and it, it could also be talking about some of this benevolence that's being handed out. So there was a big problem, wasn't there? There was a big problem here in the church. It was a bad situation. The church was in trouble. In fact, in verse 2 it says, The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said to them, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It is not desirable, it, it's not pleasing, it's not satisfactory, it's not acceptable, it's, it's not right. That's what the verb means. It's not acceptable to whom? It's not right or pleasing in whose eyes? It could be the apostles, they could be talking about themselves. It's not acceptable to us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, that's possible. But I think actually what they're talking about is God. It's not acceptable to God for us to neglect the word in order to serve tables. Think with me. The apostles were Christ's emissaries on earth, weren't they? They were charged with the spread of the gospel, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was the charge that was given to them by God. And so I think what they're saying here is for us to, to neglect the word of God, to neglect the commission that has been given to us by God is not acceptable to God. So they summon the congregation together and they remind them of this. They remind them of their priorities. And they tell them that we need to maintain our priorities. 
Now, just as a parenthetical footnote here, I'm reasonably convinced that there was all that this task of ministering to the poor had already been delegated. I'm I'm not persuaded, and I my mind could be changed. I'm not persuaded that the twelve were doing it at this time. I'm persuaded that they had already delegated the task, but it wasn't being done well. They had delegated it probably to Aramaic-speaking men, those that they knew the best, and that these men were not doing the job properly. And so what they are actually saying here in verse 2 is, we're not going to take it back. It's not, it's not right for us to take this job back. It's not, it's not right for us to neglect the Word of God in order to take back the benevolence ministry of the church. Now notice there at the end of verse 2, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God. There, I think they're talking about preaching, by the way. That seems to be the context of the Word of God all through the book of Acts. But in any case, it's not desirable for us to do this in order to serve tables. In order to serve tables. The, word, the Greek word for tables is trapeza. Trapeza, and it, and it means table. We like it when the Greek word means exactly like the English word, right? It means table. Typically, it means dining table. But in Luke chapter 19 and verse 23, the same word is used, and it refers there to a bank. It refers there to a bank. Remember, Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts, right? So Luke's vocabulary includes the notion of a bank under this word. And, and the basic idea behind it is that the bankers had a table upon which they did their business. Further footnote here, the English word bank comes from the word bench, interestingly enough. Same kind of, of migration of terminology. So the English word bank really comes from bench, and the Greek word translated bank comes from the word table. Okay, so it's all sort of related together. So it's very possible here that in the, in the, uh, when he says it's, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, that they may be talking about more than just giving out food. They may be talking about financial handouts, business arrangements, if I could say it that way. So that may be, it may be only food. But the point is, this, this, Situation was about ready to split the church. The apostles can't take it back because that would go against their commission. And so they need to do something about this. About 10 years ago, actually it was 10 years ago last month, two churches merged. Those two merged churches meet in this location. One church was called Upland Bible Church. Another church was called Foothill Baptist Church. Both congregations had met for many years in their respective locations. And through a whole long series of events that's not important to this little story, the two congregations merged officially on June 1st, 1993. So we just passed the anniversary. But think with me, what would have happened? And, and by the way, both congregations were overwhelmingly in favor of the merger. But think with me, what would have happened if shortly after the merger, 
the shut-ins, the sick, the widows of one of those congregations got overlooked in the, in the pastoral visitation ministries. How long would that have lasted and what kind of gongizimas would that have created? It's not hard to figure it out, is it? It could have blown that merger in half, even inadvertently, because all it takes is for somebody to complain to somebody else who then takes up the cause and adds a few things to it, and, and pretty soon you have a major crisis, don't you? And that's what's going on here. A bad, bad situation. So our second observation is that the, the apostles find a simple solution. They find a simple solution for a bad situation. Look at it in verse 3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. There's a lot of biblical wisdom going on here in this very simple solution. Notice the first thing that they do, the apostles, they call the, the, uh, the congregation together and they ask them to select from among themselves a group of men to take care of the problem. You see that? They, they enlist congregational involvement in the task. They are overseeing the process. Right? Look, look at verse 3. Whom we may put in charge of the task. There is no doubt about who is overseeing the congregation. But they enlist the people in the process of choosing their own leadership. That is, that is a very important thing to, to note coming out of this text, is that it, leadership in the church of God is not some sort of top-down authority. It is people amongst people, shepherds in and amongst the sheep, ministering to those who are among you, 1 Peter 5. So they call them together, they give them specific instructions on, on what they are supposed to do. Select seven men of good reputation, it says, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They need to be men of strong character. Men of strong character. Good reputation, right? Strong character. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, describing the characteristics of a deacon are all about what? Character, aren't they? These are all character requirements. Paul spells them out there. Here they just, we get an abbreviated form. Choose men who are of good character. Good reputation. Full of the Spirit. I think what he's saying is believers. These, these got to be good, solid, strong believers. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ equals being full of the Spirit, doesn't it? Isn't that the sign that one has believed? That the, that the Spirit is in full evidence within them? So they're talking about people who show the marks of the possession of the Spirit of God in their lives. Men of good reputation, men who are committed believers to the Lord Jesus Christ, and men who have wisdom. Do you see that? Wisdom. Men who possess the, the necessary natural talents to carry out the task that is assigned to them. So they have to have good reputation, they have to be clearly committed to Christ and His cause, and they have to have some, some business smarts if I can say it that way. They, they, have to, they have to be able to do the task that has been given to them. 
I mean, the oversight of, of a problem like this, think about it. Think about the level of skill and diplomacy that would be needed in a task like this. There's already a problem. The, the Hellenistic widows and those that are supporting them already think they're being maligned or are unjustly treated. And so this group of men is going to step into the fray and they're going to set it right. What happens if they fail? What happens if they're unable to, to properly distribute the benevolence? I think you can figure it out for yourself, can't you? We'd have two churches, is what would have happened. We would have had a Jewish-speaking church, and we would have had a Greek-speaking church. It was very critical that these men were skillful in what they did. They also had to be men of financial integrity. They had to be men of financial integrity. Why do I say that? Well, I say that for a simple reason. One of the 12 apostles carried the money bag and was responsible for the benevolence ministry of the apostolic band. Does anybody know who that was? That was Judas. Do you know that in John chapter 12 and verse 6, it says Judas stole, not once, but continually, out of the benevolence fund. Judas was a thief. And the apostles were well aware of that, by the way. Not then, but later. And so it would be important that the men, that they tell the congregation to put in charge of this task, also have to be men of financial integrity. And they've already been stolen from once. This was a, an, a, a very delicate time for the church. A very delicate time. They need special guys who can do this. Special men who can carry out the task. Listen for a minute, if you would, to the comments of John Calvin as he comments on this passage. I think it's insightful. By the way, just to, historically, to, so you understand why I quote this for you, John Calvin's Geneva in the 16th century was considered by many of his contemporaries to be the closest thing to heaven on earth at that time. There was a tremendous flow of Christianity out into the very fiber of the city. Benevolence was widely practiced in Geneva. And it was a ministry of the deacons in Geneva. So listen to what Calvin has to say. He says, it is necessary for them, that is the deacons, to be provided not only with the other graces of the Spirit, but also certainly with wisdom. For without it, that task cannot be properly carried out. They may thus be on guard not only against the impostors and frauds of those who are far too inclined to begging and suck up what was needed for the brethren who were in extreme poverty, but also against the slanders of those who are constantly making disparaging remarks, even if there is no occasion for doing so. For as well as being full of difficulties, that office is also exposed to unjustified complaints." Those are the words of a man who was in the thick of it and understood what was going on. When you are in a ministry of benevolence, people will begin to pop out of the woodwork who appear to need benevolence. They will write the phone number of your church down in, a, in the phone booths. Need a meal? Call this number. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It will happen. And they will begin to pour in. Some legitimately in need, others not. I mean, it would be nice to think that every person we saw begging was legitimately in need, but that's not true. 
That's not true. There were a lot of rip-offs and, and scam artists out there. There were in Calvin's Geneva. There are in Upland today. So it takes a man of wisdom who can sort through this to determine those who are in, truly in need and those who are not. There's also the opportunity to be criticized. I mean, sometimes people are in financial need because of their own sin. Is that true? And sometimes to give them money at that exact moment would be like giving dope to an addict, wouldn't it? It would do them no good. So there are times when to those on the outside looking in who don't know all the facts and cannot know all the facts, there are times when, it, when the church appears to, to not take care of someone. It only takes one of those types of occurrences and for somebody to take up the offense, the perceived offense, and decide to spearhead it when there can be all kinds of unjust accusations flying around about people and about men and about their character and their reputation. It is a job, the job of managing benevolence, that in one sense is a thankless job. You're constantly subject to criticism. You didn't give enough. You gave too much. You gave to this person and you didn't give to that person. It takes wisdom. It takes godliness. It takes integrity to manage in those kinds of circumstances. And so the apostles tell the, the brethren, the congregation here, to select seven men who can do this. Men whom we can put in charge of this particular task. But we will do what? Look at verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There is a division of labor. By the, word, by the way, the ministry of the word, that is diakonia. Same word. So what, what they're saying is that we will be deacons of the word and we need deacons of the benevolence. There is a division of duties here. There is a, the spiritual side of man that has to be taken care of and there is the physical side of man that has to be taken care of. Jesus says the world will know that you are Christians by your love for each other. Isn't that true? So that has to be a mark, a hallmark of Christianity. But the elders recognize here, and I believe, by the way, that the apostles stand in for elders in this text. Let me uh, just to, let me take this moment to do this. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5 and let me show you something. First Peter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow what? Elder. Peter was an apostle, wasn't he? But he also considered himself an elder. Okay? In this text and throughout, really, the book of Acts, the apostles stand in as prototypical elders. Their, their responsibilities, their ministries, are il illustrate the responsibilities and ministries of the elders of the church, the overseers of the church, the shepherds of the church. I mean, how many times have you heard a pastor take verse 4 to himself, right? I need to devote myself to prayer and the ministry of the word. And, and most of us would say amen, wouldn't we? So we're quick to, to assign the apostolic responsibilities to the elders. Some are slower to assign the 
the responsibilities of the seven, which is how they're known in the book of Acts, by the way, to the deacons. But I think if you take one, you have to take both. So there is a division of labor going on here, verse 4. They are devoted, it says. They devote themselves to prayer. The the idea here is single-mindedness, steadfastness to the task at hand. All too often, the, the good is the enemy of the best. Isn't that true? There are many things in life, and this is particularly true in church life. There are many good things that you can do. And if you are not careful, you will be doing so many good things that you will run out of time and energy to do the best things, the, the primary things. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. I wish that was original with me, but it's not. We can thank Pastor Jerry for that. He was good about reminding us of that important point. So the elders' time and energy can't be burned up in doing that which is merely good and to the neglect of that which is critical, that which is best. And for them, verse 4, it's a ministry of prayer and a ministry of the word. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, I think it is, or is it verse 2? It's probably verse 2. It says the elders have to be apt to do what? Yeah, verse 2, they have to. So they find a simple solution to this task. Their solution is get help. Okay, that's the solution. Get help. (coughs) So, the fourth observation that we can make from this is there's a unanimous selection. Verse 5, and the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. Now, the first observation we would want to make from verse 5 is the unanimity of it all. Do you see it? The statement finds approval with the whole congregation. They say, yes, this is a good plan. This is a solution. We want you to remain doing the best thing, the the thing that you've been commissioned to do, the ministry of prayer and the teaching of the Word of God. And we understand that there needs to be other men to do this other task. So the people choose those men. By the way, all seven men that they choose all have Greek names. They're all Greek names. Now, that doesn't prove anything. Three of the apostles had Greek names. But it's kind of interesting, I think. And so I'm going to run with it. If you don't like it, that's okay. I think the seven men were Hellenists. Were Hellenistic Jews. and I mean, it's kind of logical, isn't it? If the widows of the Hellenistic Jews are the ones being overlooked, do you want to go pick more Aramaic-speaking Jews to minister to them? Isn't it more logical that you would pick Hellenistic? And so I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened. It says they were brought before the apostles, these men, and after praying, they laid hands on them. Now, there's a question about who the antecedent of the pronoun they is. Did the whole congregation lay hands on them, or did the apostles lay hands on them? I think the antecedent is the apostles. I think it was the apostles that laid hands on them. I think that for two reasons. Number one, I think that the the apostles are clearly in an oversight position over the whole congregation, and they are supervising the process. So it's logical that they're the ones who lay hands on them. 
Secondly, beyond that, there's sort of a logistical problem. I don't know how a church of almost 20,000 by this time all lays their hands on these seven guys. And I remember when I was ordained and there was just, I think there were nine elders that laid hands on me. And uh, by the time they finished leaning on me, I was exhausted. So I just can't imagine if it was a church of that size doing it. So I think the antecedent, the pronoun is the apostles, but I could be wrong. But there is a unanimous selection that goes on here. Fourth observation. Verse 7. Luke provides a striking summary. Verse 7, you see it? And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I mean, once the problem with the Hellenistic widows had been solved, the community is at peace once again. The apostles are free to go about witnessing. The word of God continues to spread, and it converts even those that were most hostile to Christ and the faith, the priests. And now beginning to believe and come into the community of faith. I mean, it was an incredible witness. Benevolence is a principle of church growth. How do you like that? I know if you read the typical church growth literature, you would never read that statement. But I think it's true. I think it's true because I think it demonstrates a congregation expressing the love of Christ one for another. All right. What can we draw out of this text? Let's try to get some principles here in the time that remains. I have uh, five of them for you. First, application or principle that we can draw from this. We need to get deacons out of the property maintenance mentality and into the people serving mentality. First principle, okay? Is that we need to help our deacons. We need to pray for those who are in deacon ministries here that they can make the transition of, of ministry from what formerly was property maintenance to now people-oriented ministries. Deacons have to be involved in the compassion ministries of the church if this text is truly describing the ministry of a deacon. Listen to uh, what one author had to say about this whole area. It, it's really uh, painful. And I don't want to be the only one who has to suffer with it, so I'm going to share it with you. He writes, churches spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, yea, millions, on buildings, drapes, pews, and stained glass, but can barely squeeze a thousand dollars out of their budgets to help their own needy people. That was, uh, when I read that statement, I was just really pierced by such a thing. It's easy to neglect the poor among us and to indulge ourselves. Yet the early church, it said there was no needy among them, didn't it? And it said that people were bringing the proceeds of the sales of their own personal property and laying it at the feet of the apostles that they might take care of those in need. Notice, by the way, that the, those in, they weren't trying to care for all the poor of the city of Jerusalem. They were caring for the poor of their own community, their own fellowship. I'm not saying that it's not a good Christian thing to do to reach out to the poor of the whole community. That's not the point. But before you reach out into the community, you need first to make sure you take care of those of the family of God. Second point or application from this text is elders need to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
and they need to be supported in that task by a group of dedicated men. Men who understand that people's primary need is spiritual first. Right? John 6, man does not live by bread alone, right? But that physical nourishment also cannot be overlooked. So there needs to be a there needs to be elders giving themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, and there needs to be deacons supporting them, releasing them for that kind of ministry, and men that are involved in the physical nourishment, the benevolence ministries of the church and the poor and the destitute among us. As I said, don't miss in this text the impact on church growth. There are six, I think, is that right? Six? One, two, three, four, five, six summary statements in the book of Acts. Places where Luke pauses and gives us a summary statement. Here in 6-7 is one of those summary statements. It is not unintentional that when this crisis in the church is resolved, that the church continues to grow at a rapid rate. And it's not unintentional that Luke tells you that. Benevolence can have an amazing impact on the growth of a church. People want to come to a place where they're really cared about, where it's more than just lip service, where it's real. Third, since welfare activities are, sub are easily subject to abuse, those who oversee them have to be men of character and men of wisdom. That's the third point I think we can draw from this text. This is an area that is easily abused. And so the men who oversee the benevolence ministries have to be men of wisdom, men of character, men of discernment, spiritual men, spiritual men. You don't have to be a spiritual man to, to paint the properties, to mow the lawns, to wash the windows, to set up tables and chairs, to vacuum the floors. You do have to be a spiritual man and don't miss the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 are talking about spiritual men. You have to be a spiritual man to be involved in this kind of ministry. And if you will permit me, as last week I labored to try to convince you that 1 Timothy 3, 11 was talking about deacons' wives, if you'll go with me there on that interpretation, it's also easy to understand why deacons' wives have to be people of character too. This is a ministry in which they will be actively involved with their husbands, ministering to those single women within the church, widows or single moms even. Beloved, you know the greatest group of the poor in America today are single moms? We don't have biblical poor like they do in the Old Testament based on crop failures and things like that, do we? But the single group of people in this country that are most financially destitute are single mothers. Single mothers. Wouldn't, we, wouldn't it be great if we could begin to reach out in a serious way and minister to those kinds of people? How powerful would the gospel be if it included a helping hand to get back on your feet? Fourth, there is no incongruity between being a deacon and also being a competent teacher of the Word of God. They are not mutually exclusive. Look at verse 10. Speaking of Stephen, it says, Yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was a powerful 
spokesman for God. So was Philip, who's later known as the evangelist. And so it's important to understand that those that have the ministry of the deacon, that does not mean they're cut off from a teaching ministry within the church. Not all men are called to an oversight role in the church. Not all men aspire to be elders. Not all men have the passion to pastor. There's a lot of pain that goes with it. There's a lot of time commitment that goes with it. And, and not all men desire that, and that's okay. But men can be actively involved as deacons in a benevolence-oriented ministry and still be good Sunday school teachers, good Bible study leaders, good small group leaders. So there's no incongruity here. Don't, don't misunderstand the text. Saying if you're a deacon, well, you never can be a teacher of the Word of God. That, it's, that's not true. It's not true. You can have a seminary degree and be a deacon. There's no incongruity there. Fifth. Deacons must necessarily work in close cooperation with the overseers in order to minister to the total needs of a person. There are spiritual needs that people have, and many times people who are in financial distress have serious uh, spiritual needs. More often than not, their financial distress, if it's not caused, it is aggravated by poor decisions. Sometimes the results of sinful patterns of their lives that have to be dealt with. Just giving money is not good enough. They need spiritual counsel, and so there needs to be a close working together of those that are involved in the spiritual ministry of oversight. The elders, the shepherds of the church have to be involved with the deacons who are ministering to the needs of the family. I mean, think with me for a second. There could be a man who has a problem with, with drinking, and maybe he drinks up a good portion of the family paycheck. Is that possible? And thus the wife and the children are suffering because of his sinful behavior. And so maybe in that kind of an example, the elders need to be dealing with the man on the issue of drunkenness, that he would repent of this besetting sin and be able to begin to walk in full fellowship with God. At the same time, the deacons are involved in ministering to the physical needs of the family. See, it's a, it's a cooperative effort. And so the deacons and the elders have to be in close communication with each other. And that leads me to sort of a sub-point of five. And I know I'm already over time, but we're going to go and finish this. As most of you are now aware, we are restructuring the adult Sunday school classes. We have purposefully chosen to call them fellowship groups. And um, I'm trying to discipline my vocabulary to do that. Old habits die hard. We're calling them fellowship groups because we want to do more than just give out content on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. We want to minister in a, in a more all-inclusive, holistic way. Therefore, we are asking the deacons to locate themselves in the various fellowship groups and become part of the leadership teams of each of those groups. We are creating, in effect, mini-congregations within a larger congregation. And so, the, the overseers that are involved in the, in the oversight and leadership of the fellowship groups are going to be ministering alongside the deacons as a leadership team 
along with those that are involved in planning fellowships and, and home ministry and, and prayer ministries and, and outreach and visitation and all of those activities that need to go on will occur in the fellowship groups where we're closer to the people, where we know them, where we can love them and follow up on them. The deacons will still meet together once a month as a group and talk about issues that are of a nature that concern the whole body. But they will also be meeting with those individual shepherds and ministering more closely within those fellowship groups. So that's where we're going with fellowship groups. I'm very excited about that whole process. I think it gives us the ability to be big and small simultaneously. What is one of the problems of a church that grows numerically? Nobody knows each other, do they? It becomes impersonal. It's easy to fall through the cracks, to sit on the back pew and nobody takes notice of you. What's one of the strengths of a small fellowship? Intimacy? Isn't it involvement in each other's life? Aren't those the things that draw people to small fellowships? How big does God want a church to grow? We don't know. We don't know the answer to that. We do know that God wants a church to grow, doesn't he? Does not God want to see more people come into the kingdom of God? Yes, a church should grow. It should grow by conversion, but it should grow. But it needs to have be structured in a way that facilitates such things. We believe that the fellowship groups will help in that process. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our time together this evening. Father, we've covered a lot of material. Help us to process it. Lord, to think seriously on these things, to evaluate our own hearts in these matters places where we hold opinions that are contrary to the Word of God. We pray you give us grace to jettison them. Father, give us humility as well, that we would not hold too tightly to anything, that we would not make personal opinion the measure of truth. Father, I pray in particular that you would help me to come to the Word of God with an open heart and an open mind, to allow it to speak directly to me. And Lord, where it confronts my presuppositions, grant me the grace to turn from them. Our Father, I thank you for this great congregation. I thank you for these men and women and boys and girls who love you and are eager to come here week by week to hear the word of God. May you go with them now in the week before them, Father, and, and bless them as they live for you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've run you way over time. I apologize. I'm going to let you go.